and welcome to this bonus episode of 10,000 Posts. It's the show about how everything is posting. Uh, my name is Hussein. As always, I am joined by my esteemed co-host, Phoebe. Phoebe, how's it going? Uh, we are enduring the sandstorm, the British sandstorm right now. And like, as with all kinds of freak British weather, it's all, it's like, to me, it's sort of, it's, 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 it's all a bit glib, but like, to me, it's very much, um, I, I, I fully support this country kind of adopting its national colors, which is the yellow and uh I guess like the tears are kind of like rain, but basically like adopting the cry laugh emoji in its like very like essence of being. Okay. Well, you posted about this earlier, and I actually don't really know what you mean by that, but I'm not. But I'm because not, I'm not the yellow and the it. tears are like the rain, and it's kind of like a yellowy color, and it's a bit rainy. So that's where I thought, oh, it's a bit like the cry laugh emoji. But if I didn't like land with you, then um, I might just have to delete it. I don't know. I just didn't. I just didn't engage. I just didn't engage with it. I didn't relate to it. That didn't. Anyway, okay, fine. I, it's fine. <laughs> it's okay. We are joined by a friend of the show, uh, returning guest, three times, maybe. I don't know. Second uh, but... time, I think. Second time. Okay. Second time. Um, well, a many time poster. <laughs> yes, many time. Like a frequent engager in in various content. Uh, we are joined by Annie <laughs> Kelly. Uh, Annie is the is a co-host, British correspondent still of uh, QAnon Anonymous, uh, that fun podcast about uh, conspiracy theories and QAnon and all that cool stuff. Uh, Annie, how's it all going? Uh, how are you enjoying the sandstorm? Thank you. Yeah, it's going very well. I think it's had a, yeah, the sandstorm has had a, a strange effect on my mood, I think. Um, it's brought out very weird vibe in me. I think this might be the vibe shift I heard people <laughs> talking about. <laughs> Mm, yeah may, i mean i haven't seen people i haven't seen people like act weird in my area around the sandstorm however yesterday when the sun was out and it was a little bit warmer than it was usually the first guy i did see when i went out for my walk was a guy who was not wearing a shirt okay um, and i thought and i thought that was more in, like symbolic of a vibe sh- like maybe of a vibe shift i don't know maybe i think that feels thing. more like a harbinger than anything else Mm. <laughs> um, Dev, could you uh, insert uh, Darude's sandstorm somewhere in here, please? <laughs> no, no, I don't think I will. Thank you, thank Thanks. you very much. <laughs> um, you. Okay, but we have so, folks, we have some serious-ish business to talk about today because uh, another friend of the show, um, one Dr. Jordan B. Peterson, has once again been posting. Um, he. But crucially, and in a very rare, um, rare uh, action, he deleted a tweet. Um, I don't think Jordan Peterson ever really deletes tweets, regardless of like how much he kind of gets dunked on a ratio. So I'm trying to figure out like why he did. But I'm going to read this tweet out. This happened like a couple of days ago, so I think it was like the 13th or 14th of March. Um, so where Dr. Jordan B. Peterson says, "Postmodern neo-Marxists," uh, and he's writing a list of postmodern neo-Marxists: Ibrahim X. Kendi, Tanahasi Coates, Robin D'Angelo. Kimberly Crenshaw, Bell Hooks, Andrea Dworkin, Michelle Foucault, Naomi Klein, Catherine McKinnon, Judith Butler, Jack Storida, and above all, Michelle Foucault. This list is not complete. Well, number one, Dr. Peterson, you, re- you repeated Foucault twice. <laughs> so so uh, it feels to me as if you ran out of names. However, um, yeah. One like thing this- that I hadn't noticed, um, and that won't be obvious to your listeners because you read it aloud, um, is that he respects the lowercase capitalization of Bell Hooks' name. I was literally about to say that, and I think that is extremely funny. 
That's really yeah, interesting, he's, isn't that it? He's done that because his entire because his entire now sort of public intellectual profile is hinged upon not respecting the way that people the, the way that people choose to describe and express themselves. Yeah, so it's, it is interesting to express the convention. I wonder if I wonder if he has a phone that auto corrects it. Is that possible? It could be, but I don't think. If you write write Beyonce on an iPhone, it adds the accent. Yeah, but I'm not sure whether it applies necessarily to bell hooks. No. It it wouldn't seem to be. But you're right. I I was going to bring this up myself, and it is interesting. (laughs) One second. I'm just going to see. I'm going to see whether it does uh, in in this social experiment. Because it will tell us a lot about... Okay, so I'm writing bell hooks in capitalization... No, it doesn't. It just kind of. And I've got autocorrect on my phone, so like, it does. It like he. That's a deliberate choice, and I'm very intrigued as to like why. It just seems like an odd one for a like. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. The these are just the facts, and they don't care how you identify. Yeah. Yeah. Sort of a- guy. Yeah, absolutely. Very very interesting. Um. <laughs> so here's the thing. Jordan Peterson is making lists. Um. And he's making lists <laughs> of neo-Marxists. Like so. Is he checking Keen- them twice? He might be checking. Well, no, clearly not, because well, then no, he would have not capitalized. Them twice, he's... Twice. <laughs> on twice. Um but I think there's like there's there's something fascinating about this, I guess. There's one that's in relation to like Jordan Peterson and again, crucially, like his post coma like search for his relevance in this bigger scheme of things. But also, as we sort of spoke about with Sam Hoadley Brill like a long like a while ago, um, this is also sort of like symbolic of the kind of like culture war rights um next kind of foray into like whatever kind of political influence it wants to exert um and this is like broadly coming from like it's two arguably more successful like influences being chris ruffo and james Lindsay, who mm-hmm. like have kind of like really pillared like they've kind of really been posting tons and tons of stuff about like critical theory and critical race theory and like neo-marxism and like you know all these very kind of you know bizarre posts that don't make sense to people who not are not only just academics but people who are like vaguely aware of like critical theory um but nonetheless have kind of had these very big impacts in schools in America so like there are several schools that have like introduced well there are several states that have introduced or have even passed like critical race theory based legislation there are stories about um schools that are like getting rid of like particular books um uh Rufo and Lindsay are like using parent teacher associations really as their way to kind of like exact this influence mm. so i imagine for like much of the right who have really been who have like for some of whom have been really struggling to figure out like what to do like post trump and like pre the next us election um Peterson sort of seems to kind of just be jumping on the bandwagon. Mm. And I think that's kind of an interesting thing to observe. But like, I wanted to ask you both, like, what are your kind of initial sort of thoughts, observations about this post and like what you think it might say about uh, Dr. Peterson? Annie, would you like to go first as the <laughs> guest, as a treat? Yeah, I mean, it's such an interesting collection of thinkers that, I mean, I really can't think of anything that they all have in common apart from being in Jordan Peterson's tweets about them. <laughs> like, and there's like really just like interesting, like sort of collaborations. So he's got, so for instance, people like um, 
Okay, so yeah, Derrida and Foucault. Okay, so it's the kind of yeah, sort of French postmodernist turn. You've got um, Ibram X Kendi and Tanisi Coates, who are, have po- um, published very kind of popular treatises on race in America. Um, Catherine McKinnon and Andrea Dworkin, they're the kind of radical feminist second wave. Um, and then there's Naomi Klein, who it seems like a strange addition to me. I yeah. sort of like, because, you know, she she writes really good books. Um, you know, the, the Shock Doctrine and um, what's the case for the new Green New Deal one called? I can't remember that she also wrote like No Logo as well, right? Mm. No Logo. Yeah, of course. And it's like a really, she really sticks out to me there. Because I can't think what she's done that's annoyed him so much. I can sort of figure out with the other ones, mm. you know. It's it's not it's not a hundred percent clear, is it? Like there's yeah, no, there's, and he there's, hasn't so, really there's got, something yeah. interesting about the shape of the shape of this list because he hasn't said anything about what it's for or what it's what it's trying to achieve, and it does, and it does seem to be reproducing a kind of if not fascist and definitely like kind of fascist adjacent uh kind of inclination to kind of keep lists and have publicly available lists and it's a sort of plausible deniability thing that it's like well i've just kept the list it's not up to me what people do about Mm. the list it's not up to me what people then take from the list or what people might imagine i'm saying with the list because he's not saying here are some people that it's worth reading. He's saying, here are some people who uh, who can be collectively placed under an, inter- an intellectual tradition umbrella, which I have explicitly said is uh, culturally and spiritually like dangerous and destructive. Mm. So yeah. he's so he means something by it, and it and it. it like honestly, the biggest thing it reminded me of is um, a friend of mine found out that he was on a list of a uh, list of Jewish journalists kept by kept by a neo-Nazi organization, and on on consultation with the police, was told, "Well, it's not against the law to have a list," and it's true, it's not. There's mm-hmm. nothing that you can. There's nothing that can be done about people keeping lists. And it's sort of supposed to be a kind of not not a threat exactly, but I think it's almost like he's kind of unconsciously parroting some of the things which he's claiming to always have stood against because he's very very keen on the line that um that the left is the is the new fascism he's very keen on that as a kind of general a sort of general kind of organizing principle. What we've missed out is that he then goes on to start talking about the mark of Cain um which I think is actually more why he's deleted these posts because mm. i don't really know what the i don't really know what the connection is and i also don't really know who talks about the mark of cain who hasn't very much nailed their colors to the mast in mm. a very particular kind of way yeah i didn't see him i didn't see the follow-ups to there's a follow-up week. about the mark of cain yeah Mm. Which I, didn't, is now, I didn't see the follow which is up. Now, it's now lost. It's now lost to yeah, he, ether. He, he deleted the post, and I'm still like kind of confused why, because like he's posted like more like batshit stuff mm. um in his time. So like part of me wonders, is it just because he like posted Foucault twice? But he also didn't kind of repost it either. Mm. Um 
So I want, yeah, I just kind of wonder what happened there. My thinking is like, you know, again, like this kind of like draws on Phoebe, like what you were saying, Phoebe, about kind of like the uses of lists and assemblages in this particular like moment. And like, it reminds me a lot of like James Lindsay, for example, who will, you it's know. It's a very and, Lindsay-esque post. Yeah. I was yeah, thinking that. It is, absolutely. And it's like very kind of Chris Rufo post as well. And like Chris Rufo has sort of been, you know, we talked about this on the episode with Sam. Uh, he kind of goes on Twitter a lot and like very openly admits that, yeah, I just sort of like throw shit at the wall and see what sticks, right? And like when you find something that sticks, you keep kind of doing that. Like Rufo is like the strategist. Lindsay, on the other hand, is someone who like, started off with like a particular you know he started off doing the whole kind of like pseudo grievance studies stuff the idea that oh you know there's too much kind of mumbo jumbo in academia and like you know nothing makes sense etc um something that like even though that's like a very very simplistic reading and a very charitable reading of what he was trying to do mm. but over time what he kind of has done is like his kind of theories have become far more confusing and like less coherent um i was listening to uh, I was listening to Decoding the Guru's uh, podcast recently where they had a clip of Lindsay where he kind of like, um, where, he, where he sort of explains like what critical race theory is. And he jumps from like Ibram X. Kendi uh, to um, the Frankfurt School and to like Hegelians. It's like very, very mm. bizarre how fast he makes these leaps. But like what seems to be very clear is that like he can make, if you make enough associations fast enough, then you can basically kind of like create a very simple how-to guide for people who don't aren't necessarily as plugged into like online this aspect of online culture but like feel like they should do something about you know leftist corruption in public mm. schools and stuff so this is actually seems to be much more of like reinforcing a guide of like if you're a parent or like a concerned citizen or something you should just prohibit everything produced by this collection of thinkers and it doesn't really matter how related they are or how influenced they are by each other or even just like how similar they are mm. yeah I agree and it's the kind of Jim James Lindsay trick of I guess just reeling off an awful lot of names very quickly that sort of isn't really ever going to convince us mm. but it's not really meant to no, of it's kind of meant to uh, impress upon people who already like what he's saying that this guy knows his stuff that he has kind of is aware and has followed this kind of breadth of thinkers. Um, and because you already like what he's saying, why wouldn't you then believe that they're all connected in a kind of tradition, a sort of postmodern neo-Marxist tradition? Yeah, it's a kind it's a kind of it's a kind of posturing. Um, and it's quite and it's a very effective posturing because it's like part of it is based on obfuscation and people who sort of make the mistake of kind of trying to engage with it seriously as if they are people to whom words matter and ideas matter and response and sort of civic or cultural responsibility matters um it's like well it's like that thing it's like the thing that uh that Sartre says about arguing arguing with anti-semites mm -hmm. that you can't argue with them on the terms that they've set because they they are behaving as if as if language is not is not a value and they are just amusing themselves and if you are behaving as if language and concepts matter they know that they're being ridiculous and outrageous so the point so so saying something like well doesn't jordan peterson say that you can't call somebody uh, can't call people racist because it's too imprecise and it groups too many different people under the same heading and this is what he's doing here i mean accusing 
like using this kind of thinking and public posturing of of hypocrisy absolutely misses the point because it's still engaging with it on its on its own terms mm. Mm. also it's it's a it, he's he's gone he's definitely gone a bit peculiar i know he's been very very ill and he and he um his wife keeps feeding that his his daughter keeps feeding him steak yeah the, um, the man's been through a lot he's <laughs> definitely been through a lot um i hadn't realized that he'd um he'd become addicted to benzos and then um and then tried to go cold turkey with them yeah and then tried to uh and then tried to uh like like take part in one of those um using ketamine for like untreatable depression trials and that made him feel even worse so like i think it's entirely possible that he's that he is sort of been driven driven kind of clean out clean out of his mind because this is this is different to the sort of stuff that he was doing before i think there is i think there's a yeah i think there's like oh. i think there's i think that no, i think there's a watershed to it because and anything he said before which you could describe as far right sentiment um always struck always struck me as not so much far right sentiment as somebody who is just a really good example of someone who's been educated beyond their brain right <laughs> and so every so so just a not very smart guy who has for whatever reason allowed himself to buy into the fiction that he is a very smart guy so he thinks that he's kind of got access to knowledge which is like kind of denied to ordinary people denied to the ordinary brain so when he says stuff like so when he kind of sees stuff kind of out and about he kind of just he doesn't really have any kind of interesting why he doesn't like critical theory he doesn't have any critical capacities of his own not really so when he says stuff like the thing is is that like hit like hitler made germany's economy really good for example and people don't talk about that i I don't i don't i don't think that i don't think that uh peterson is a nazi i don't think he's a holocaust denier i don't think he's i i don't think that's what he's engaging in no at all i think what he is is that he is not very smart guy who thinks like okay but like maybe we could like introduce some nuance to this and he's just seen something and absorbed it and hasn't bothered to check whether or not it's true i don't and i don't think that it's so very dissimilar to to a kind of youtube commenter being on a kind of ramp he where has, like the yeah. first thing that the way where, where you can sort of track um where you can track someone's sort of sort of travel sort of sort of line of travel through a kind of so first they say they say well oh yeah but like what about this or what about that and then it just like leads them sort of deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper but because he is a an academic with a large public profile mm. it comes across as far more deliberate and far more sinister than it actually yeah. needs to be i think the problem is is that people take him far too seriously yes exactly yeah we've spoken about this before a little bit and like i'll be very quick with it um because i'd like love to hear your thoughts Annie, on it as well i my thinking is that i think he has tenure brain right mm. so like he had a very comfortable academic career for a very long time but crucially like very recently he voluntarily left 
right? Mm. Um, because he wanted to pursue the noble art of creating content, to which I say, like, critical support. I completely <laughs> understand that. Um, but also, like, it's a type of, like, situation that no one, and Annie, like, you'll know this, like, as well, like, no one really gets that type of stuff anymore. But, like, yeah. I remember, so I, when I was, I finished my master's recently, and I was working with someone who's had tenure um, in, the, in an anthropology department for a long time. And what was very remarkable to me was that, like, part of having tenure brain is sort of not only kind of being stuck in or like having to stay in a particular very niche area of your field for a very, very long time, but also kind of orientating your thinking around kind of justifying that as both like a relevant um, and necessary like area of that field, regardless of like maybe how outdated it is or how like, you know, inapplicable it is to like other types of situations. And I think for like Peterson, I don't know what he like, properly specialized in but from what i understand he was kind of like a jungian psycho like trained in jungian mm. psychoanalysis he's a he's a, um, he's, he's, a psych, he's a psychologist yeah but like in terms of what because he was like an academic psychologist as yeah well, he's right? an academic like, psychologist but like he, he I, yeah. I believe i believe he is also trained as a treating yeah, you kind of have to you you kind of have to do both. I think when you get to that point, I think like yeah. the point the, the 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 wider issue is that like being in a university for that long a time um, means that like your brain is kind of wired in a certain way. Um, yeah. And then when he like and crucially, as we said in like previous episodes, he kind of like becomes this public figure, um, not necessarily by intention. He's kind of like thrown up there by you know viral videos and kind of all you know, and then he sort of embraced that for a long time. Then he kind of embraced, you know, the true art of darkness, which is content creation, but also now finds himself post coma, like with a message that doesn't necessarily resonate as much as it used to. Right. Mm. The whole idea of like, you know, the self-improvement space has kind of like been really kind of taken up and absorbed by lots of grifters who are basically kind of saying the same stuff as him, but mm. in like much more marketable terms. But also like a lot of his true believers have kind of realized that, oh, you know, regardless of like how much self-improvement I do, I can't really change my material conditions all that much. So maybe like I need to kind of go towards other people, like go towards like more, you know, and those people tend to be people with more extremist positions. So mm. again, like Peterson finds himself not necessarily being a leader in this space anymore, but a follower. And Annie, I don't yeah. I, like- Because can't, he, uh, can't, he can't triangulate it really. And um, the one thing I just wanted to intervene with this before we let Annie talk, and I'm actually interested in what Annie as somebody who is like currently in academia, what like you what you think what you think about this? But this is certainly certainly my observation from um, from when I when I was my when I was myself. And this is like not this is not a this is not a situation um, that exists anymore. This is no longer the academic trajectory because the academic trajectory is now you finish your PhD and then you either do something else or you are in, you are in precarious labour because mm. there aren't any academic jobs and you get treated and you get treated absolutely appallingly um and are also expected to kind of extend a kind of sort of quite kind of fractured solidarity because kind of senior staff members who have mm. uh full-time salary jobs while you're like driving around the country to teach for 20 pounds an hour and again i know 20 pounds <laughs> an hour like it sounds like it's a kind of high hourly rate but it doesn't include reading it doesn't include um, it doesn't include prep time um, and it doesn't include the probably thousands of pounds you spent on getting the doctorate in the first place. So like it's, you know, um, so let, let's not go into whether or not it's whether or not it's actually a lot of money because it it really isn't. 
Um, but this is but this is certainly something that I observe from being around senior academics and sort of career academics was that they had done their PhDs and their postdocs 40,000 years ago and the way they'd done it was they'd like found an area that nobody else had like kind of written up and they gathered all the research together and then they wrote it up and the point of the point of your doctorate is to just just like just so kind of stupefy your examiners with boredom that they can't possibly fail it because they can't can't face reaching like reading it to the end um again this is not about your your doctorate this is very specifically in the department (laughs) that I was in um but then what you get as a reward for having done that and having got your first lectureship etc is that you can then just sort of sort of move into a much more kind of vibes only area of research and once you get kind of senior and important enough you can sort of go go to an academic publisher and say so I've got an idea for a book and it's mad um what do you reckon and this is what one tutor I met um met had done he had come up with this theory for which he had no real evidence no real reasoning other than I think this is fun I think this is a fun thing to have come up with a theory about which is that there is this entirely missing uh pre uh pre-Augustus Roman literary tradition which accounts for uh some of the kind of understanding gaps in particularly in kind of comedy tragedy and history but that there is an entire lost tradition that we don't have anymore and that everything that we do have is just responding to that Mm. and it's a fun idea but it's not one that has any real plausible plausible evidence like not really it's a it's a it's a vibes theory and I kind of feel that that Jordan that Jordan Peterson having straddled the line between academia and content creation sort of thinks that he can more or less do the same thing in content creation but there are people who are doing it a lot a lot better in one in one obviously better is a kind of value judgment in this case but like a lot a lot stronger and kind of really really having opinions as opposed to just sort of you know asking questions or whatever it is that he claims he's doing and I think that it's like he's trying to kind of he's trying to kind of impose academia vibes only onto content creation which is also vibes only but in a very very specific way <laughs> um, yeah I mean when you were saying you know about working so hard on your PhD and then <clears throat> abandoning that just to go into yeah, and to kind of more vibes based. I was just a bit like, yeah, it's called podcasting after your PhD. <laughs> we all do. It. Um, so maybe really the only difference between Jordan Peterson and lots of us is that a he already had a pretty cushy position before, mm. and b he's doing it, I guess, from the right. Mm. Um, and although, yeah, when you were saying there's a, you know this kind of uh, the the story of the professor with the idea for a kind of lost uh, ancient tradition of literature I was like yeah I'm pretty sure I've read that on like telegram chats actually <laughs> um so you know maybe kind of yeah maybe Jordan Peterson is in fact a pioneer mm. in that he's bringing those kind of theories back to their rightful audience which is on YouTube <laughs> yeah. you know maybe he's just kind of squaring that circle 
Um, but it was something I, I followed Jordan Peterson's career, like, um, or his, his new career, I should say, basically since it began, which was years and years ago when he became a, something of a, a celebrity on the kind of, uh, reactionary internet because he had protested against a specific new rule at his university about respecting pronouns. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he sort of became for a while a kind of professor owns, you know, screaming SJW um, kind of guy from that clip. So I was like, oh, all right, well, I'll, a lot of his lectures were on YouTube, so I watched them. And it was all just quite interesting, but sort of quite standard Joseph Campbell, you know, kind of uh, meaning of myth sort of stuff. Mm. And yet because he had this celebrity, um, suddenly I was seeing all of these commenters on what were just like, you know, pretty standard undergraduate lectures. Um, We're seeing all these comments essentially of people saying, you know, like, oh my God, he's really unlocked things for me. He really gets it, you know. And I sort of thought, oh, he's kind of just introducing this audience who would never actually access this kind of material um, otherwise because literature analysis is, you know, too feminized and all the rest of it. Mm-hmm. Um, he's actually just kind of introducing them to some pretty basic um, kind of academic uh, concepts. Mm. Um, and I felt the same when it came to his book career as well. Uh, he was kind of lacing this sort of very generic self-help stuff with, um, you know, kind of complaints about society and kind of um, becoming too feminine dominant. But it was almost that sort of seemed to be kind of almost incidental to the text of the book themselves, which was just quite boring self-help advice. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think they were compl- I, yeah, I, I completely agree. I I have a lot more thoughts on Peterson. <laughs> However, I am very conscious that like we have another big topic yes. to discuss. So that was our Jordan Peterson update. Uh, I'm very sure that he'll be coming back very soon. Um, but in the meantime, uh, Annie, we uh we uh wanted you to come on in part because uh we were very interested in uh, I guess like what's been going on with QAnon these days, uh, especially in relation to like the ongoing war in Ukraine. Um, but also like there have kind of been a few things happening in Mac QAnon space. Anyway, I think there was like a recent story about a Proud Boys guy, I think Enrique Tario, uh, who turned out to sort of, I think turned out to be an informant or like was an informant, um, who like a content creator informant, which I just find very funny, but mm. crucially the idea that like, they're still kind of reeling from what happened during like January the 6th. Mm. Um, and that's kind of unraveling, but crucially, uh, you have like this war taking place, which uh, has like, I don't know whether it's kind of like renewing it or giving like a sense of purpose. So for listeners who have like been keeping less of a track of this than I have, um, what is happening with QAnon? Like what other kind of like recent movements that have been taking place in relation to like the ongoing conflict, but also just like dramas that they've kind of been uh, going through since the beginning of the year? Yeah, so I guess January the 6th, um, was a bit of a rupture moment for QAnon and not simply in terms of them kind of having to sort of face the kind of this kind of event. Um, but actually I think probably the more important part for them, because they'd face loads of events that, you know, needed interpreting or 
um, unpacking or deviating from before. And QAnon is really adept at that. Um, but actually, probably the thing I think that affected them the most was the sudden crackdown on social media, which had kind of been happening on various platforms um, uh, with the in the year before with the kind of stop the steal and election misinformation, uh, but really came to a head on after January the 6th, where um, lots of platforms who had largely just been um, had largely just been releasing what their terms of service said anyway, packaging it as a new development in their terms of service that was specifically going to tackle this problem um, and then banning one or two of the really big groups. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, you know, it, it, was, it was every single time it was, it got the effects they wanted, which is, you know, they get a headline and all of the big papers saying Facebook, you know, cracks down on QAnon, but it didn't actually materially affect the problem at all. Mm-hmm. Sorry, my cat's scratching at the door. But no worries. Up. <laughs> um, so um, this kind of, so um, there was actually meaningful change and particularly on the real holdouts on um, QAnon organizing, which was Facebook and Instagram, um, which meant that a lot of um, users moved to less regulated, less moderated apps. Um, Telegram seems to have been the one that stuck the most, um, although there's Parler and Gab and things like that as well. Um, and this has had, I guess, an effect that anyone could have predicted, which means that the ideas and kind of um, content that is coming out of these spaces is less moderated, more violent, more openly hateful, um, but also reaches a much smaller audience, crucially. Um, and I think this is, yeah, you're kind of talking about the war. Um, I think this has really affected essentially how they interpret, um, the war in Ukraine, Mm. um, because it has become so untethered from not just, you know, um, it's become so untethered, not simply from, um, kind of the rest of social media and the kind of liberal understanding of reality and all the rest of it. Um, but actually from like the things that made QAnon, QAnon itself, mm. it's become increasingly, you know, dis- um, distant from Trump, for example, and the MAGA movement as a whole. Um, it doesn't really communicate with those kind of um, touchstones anymore and increasingly less Q drops as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was sort of to be expected from Q stopping posting, um, from Q stopping posting on the eve of, on the day of the election. Um, but yeah, it's it's certainly kind of morphing into its own, I guess, interpretive lens and no longer relying on those, yeah, those touchstones. Mm. I wondered, like, what that kind of suggests about what QAnon is as a movement. Um, I guess because like the kind of Trump MAGA stuff, so you know, the, the QAnon sort of being like in like an offshoot or like an evolution of that comes from this idea, but like there is a shadowy cabal of like elites mostly centered around kind of America or like the great kind of economic hegemon. Um, and that like there is kind of that there will be kind of uh, a big revelation, almost like kind of like a messianic revelation that will kind of be able to, you know, perform. For, for like lack of a better term a great reset 
um, <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, can kind of like, you know, put society on the right track and like whether Trump was that or whether there was like another figure. Um, I wonder, like, I guess like listening to what you were saying, one question I have is like, I wonder whether the disattachment from like the very American roots of QAnon also come from a recognition of like, uh, and, it's, you know, and I think like this war sort of represents this, the real kind of like lack of power in like of like america right or just kind of the idea that with kind of these big international conflicts and crucially ones that like america can't meaningfully do much about in terms of pushing its military might whether this also kind of you know makes people lose faith in the american state and therefore like you know any idea of like renewal sort of feels very placid um and then at the same time i i also just wonder whether it's kind of the nature of these types of ephemeral uh, but kind of ever expansive conspiracy theories that, you know, and we and I think when we, when I spoke to Travis, he sort of mentioned this as well. Like, you know, you have different offshoots of QAnon who like prioritize different things or like have very, you know, and, like some of them disagree with each other and so on. So as these kind of movements become much more expansive, um, its objectives become more obscure, uh, the purposefully obfuscated at times. I just wondered what your thoughts were on that. Yeah, I mean, again, I think that certainly to me seems like a slight platform effect of moving to, um, yeah, on uh, more unmoderated platforms, but also platforms crucially which aren't really aren't really kind of engaged with a kind of wider social media world. Mm. So the kind of content that they're all interpreting now comes from each other, you know? Yeah. Okay. Um, so it's like a, almost a kind of crosshatch of kind of right. content, you know, it's kind of, so uh, it's, you know, it's sort of turned into a kind of YouTube reaction video ecosystem. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a really good way of putting it. That's really but, interesting. Okay. You know, like it's, it's something that you, um, You'll see kind of on um, places like Telegram, uh, certainly, where, you know, a video that claims to be of, you know, an event in Ukraine and actually comes from a war 10 years earlier and things like that will kind of get forwarded, um, you know, between all of the QAnon chats. And they'll certainly all have their own different takes on it. Um, and some of those will get forwarded through as well. And then people will add another layer of interpretation. So it's sort of become like, everybody is Q now mm. do you know everybody yeah. is doing the Q drops and everyone is allowing their own kind of um interpretations to sort of become um yeah. to become the kind of uh, primary text to which the whole kind of community is working towards and that's presumably part of the key to its survival that it had to be it had to move towards a more kind of democratized form of content creation and production yeah, and I mean, I think it's why, you know, to not to give the platforms too much credit, but I think it's also why um, it's been so difficult to crack down on because QAnon is like a very democratized conspiracy theory and they were incredibly mobile and kind of agile and, um, you know, learning new terms, learning new words to kind of escape sort of um, ban evasion and um, what's the word? Um, algorithmic detection yeah. and things like that. Um, and the problem is that once you've, and, you know, they were also incredibly savvy. It's something I certainly noticed when I was kind of joining QAnon groups on Facebook is that you would request to join a group and then immediately you would get 15 friend, requ 15 friend requests. Mm. 
And the reason for that, you know, uh, wasn't just people being friendly. It was because they were aware that if the group got banned, then they could just simply start a new one and add all of their friends who were in the old one. Yeah. Um, and the problem is that once those, once a kind of network has got all of those tactics um, and has got all of those links and strategies, um, it's kind of impossible to get rid of, mm. do you know? Yeah. Mm. Um, it is kind of just there for life. And it's why, you know, since QAnon um, started, any kind of conspiracy theory that wants to get attention will start using QAnon kind of themes um, because they essentially have to move through this network that already exists yeah. um, That's interesting. To, to kind of, because it's just, it's just the smart thing to do, right? It's, if I had a, you know, a theory that I really wanted to get off the ground, I'd certainly kind of try and make it sort of relevant yeah. to QAnon so I could use those already established networks yeah. Which have kind of thousands and thousands of followers. So, like, you, like yeah. using, well, like using, like well-known searched-for hashtags. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or kind of, you know, sprinkling in some kind of cabal talk or satanic pedophiles or anything <laughs> like that. You just know it's just gonna, um, it's just gonna take off that way. What's very funny about this is that it kind of just incorporates, like, it incorporates both, like, the tactics from very mainstream and kind of glib like marketing and PR, but also mm. like the impulses of fandom as well, right? The idea yeah. of like, you know, spamming hashtags yeah. uh, by like just spamming, like, I mean, lots of it is like related to spam. Um, huge drops where you just sort of like tag lots of people in the hope that like maybe one will notice. Uh, yeah. And even if they don't notice, it's more of just like, just getting it out there that kind of matters. And you're right, like what's been really interesting, I think like when I think about fandom, for example, and how platforms like TikTok, for example, who are very dependent or at least kind of like are very much dependent on like big, you know, cultures of fandom. And then crucially, like when you think about, you know, notions of the creator economy and how so much of like visions of Web3 will be based on kind of people having micro fandoms, then mm -hmm. you have like QAnon basically has this kind of like ready built infrastructure where even if kind of like this kind of base this based mythology doesn't really resonate so much or it's kind of like the foundations of it are kind of like a shadow of what they were those structures are still very much in place and crucially like the kind of way that people post the way that people communicate the types of like monikers symbols signifiers and so on they don't go away they just become like reappropriated so what's very fascinating to me is also just like the mainstreaming of QAnon isn't necessarily about like the conspiracy in and of itself but rather like the modes of which they have kind of developed forms of communication, like how different forms of communication in digital space. I don't know if that makes any sense. But... Mm. No, that completely makes sense. That's a, a really wonderful way of putting what I was sort Thank of rambling you. about. I, like, Thank you. I, I enjoy validation. Thank you very much. Um, <laughs> um, I mean, like the reason why I kind of say this is also because I think about, and we were speaking about this a little bit uh, before we mm. started the show. And I'm just like very fascinated with like, what your thinking is around this how this then kind of like you know we've spoke we've sort of spoken a little bit about like how like the kind of expansiveness of QAnon and the structure of it means that it can engulf like current events and phenomena very very quickly and it can kind of like incorporate it into like its myth making processes and its narratives and so on and one of the big kind of like flashpoints you mentioned was in relation to climate change mm. um uh, and we've sort of seen kind of instances of that happen right now. So like in the British press, for example, like 
a lot of the kind of like right wing take seems to be about like a uh, uh, being like anti net zero. The idea that like mm-hmm. net zero is kind of causing all these problems and like that stuff being amplified by the war in Russia and Ukraine. But like scratch beneath that surface, and you've kind of got you know you've you've got this kind of like wave of climate denial, but it takes a very different form to how we would kind of traditionally conceive of it. And I wondered whether you could kind of like talk about that and like where you think kind of QAnon-ish structures sort of fit into how we're going to kind of need to conceive of climate change in the next few years. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, it's something I began noticing the more I was in kind of COVID skeptic groups and um, COVID denial groups and things like that was how much people would bring up climate change as relevant um, and in terms of what the elites were plotting to do next. And I remember I, <laughs> a friend of mine got me a present, which was a woman's self-published book, which she'd been handing out in Dundee, um, which was called Again, The Case Against Lockdown. And um, the first page began with her saying, you know, I stopped watching the news once they started trying to kind of push all of that, you know, polar bears and the ice cap stuff on you. Um, But this is kind of, you know, uh, a kind of constant sort of uh, wave of resentment that is in these groups that, you know, the next thing uh, that the elites are going to do is say, we all need to stay indoors because it's more carbon friendly. And, you know, all of this kind of stuff kept on coming up again and again. And I sort of, thought to myself that this is actually kind of a new form of climate denial, which doesn't ever really bother with kind of, is climate change man-made or not? Mm. They're not really interested in that question as such. Um, But what they are interested in is kind of delegitimizing any kind of climate measures. Um, And also, which I think you see, this is kind of the more mainstream version of it, is demonizing climate activists. Mm. Um, which is, you know, just a kind of national sport in the UK anyway. Um, And so it kind of utilizes these kind of conspiracy theories, which have become very prominent about during, which have become very prominent during COVID, Um, kind of totalitarian governments kind of trying to seed our fear and our anxiety to institute kind of further tyrannical control and possibly kill us all. and I felt a little bit legitimized by this because um, I saw a report by Logically AI, um, which was on climate misinformation, which said that, yeah, essentially misinformation around climate change has evolved away from straightforward denialism. Um, and they said it's now become the, the more prominent kind is skepticism about the necessity and cost of political action. Mm. And I love that they use this in a proper report, doomerism about what can be done. Mm. Um, which I think is also a really common um, form of, which I think is also a really new, which I think is also a really common uh, style that this takes. The planet's fucked anyway. We just need to batten down the hatches, you know. Mm. Um, And this is something I guess I've been thinking through a little bit um, recently, which is it seems often when I think we talk of eco-fascism that, it's almost considered to be taken to taking climate climate change too seriously, mm. right? It's the kind of sort of popular form of the term. 
um, going way overboard on kind of your climate change and stuff like that. But actually, I kind of think the ecofascism and climate denial. I've been reading a really good book called The Rise of Ecofascism by uh, the guys who did the podcast, 12 Rules for What. That's a really great read. Um, and one thing I've been thinking about a lot is how actually denial about climate change and ecofascism don't actually need to be opposite ends of the spectrum. Mm. Do you know? You can kind of quite capably do one and the other at the same time. Because you can because you can sort of <clears throat> because you can class your um doubts about uh the reasoning behind uh costly political action and declines decline in the quality of life and you can frame that as um overpopulation arguments which is like mm. a cornerstone of ecofascism and uh hostility to climate refugees and a kind of global north perspective of battening down the hatches as you said so yeah the the two things need, need not necessarily be be in particular tension at all i think they're probably part of part of the same <clears throat> part of the same framework of thinking and understanding certainly exactly. now because people are no longer no, now no longer saying well the climate's not changing because it is so incredibly apparently and yeah and even even the most um even the most uh untrusting of people presume I, actually no maybe they do do they think that like is there like a kind of sector that think kind of images of flooding and that kind of thing are are kind of made are sort of made up in as a kind of as a sort of consent manufacturing machine oh yeah those people are still around definitely but it almost seems to be more you know um the government is you know using these kind of disparate events to kind of get us on board with the great reset Mm. okay but yeah i i guess because climate change is a problem which requires a global solution um then particularly with kind of the rise of covid denial the far right do kind of have the far right which are you know totally opposed to global solutions on any scale mm. you know um have well, all of this language <laughs> it's globalism yeah um kind of have this kind of ready-made language of kind of the great reset um which you know was based on a world economic forum proposal which was supposed to be about sustainable recovery from mm. covid so oh, kind of concepts already baked in there mm. um and so they can kind of you know sort of say this is kind of new world order stuff I feel um, like if you were a PR person or like if you were working at the World Economic Forum and someone was like, yeah, we've got this kind of like very mundane plan to try like reverse some stuff and we're going to call it like this yeah. tyrannical thing. You, you won't call it anything that sounds like a little bit evil, will yeah. you? Yeah. You're not going to call it anything like Project Decimation. You're not going to call it anything like that. <laughs> This is the pro- yeah. This is the problem. There's like, oh yeah, we need a sexy name for it, and it's just like, yeah. no, no, you no. want like the most boring shit you can think of. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. Um, but then, yeah, exactly as Phoebe said, uh, you know, the terrain then moves to yeah, you know, we need to protect ourselves. We need to adapt to the effects of climate change, essentially, which involves yeah, yeah securing the borders cleaning the nation up nebulously you see this in lots of kind of little ukip splinter groups that will talk about like picking up litter and stuff like that mm. um but i mean so, i mean so much of um not necessarily environmentalism per se but a lot of um 
a lot of kind of early interest in, uh, shall we say, human management methods to like preserve the natural world. Like have that like have their roots in particularly in Nazism, but in, but like in generally in 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 fascist thinking. Mm. Um, and I think it's very important to uh, to be able to to package it in such a way that it is kind of convincing to normal people without fault without kind of falling into kind of falling into those traps. I don't really know what that that solution is because uh, I, it all feels very um, overwhelming and frightening and impossible to, to <laughs> me. But um, yeah, I mean, like. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm I'm not a climate scientist, so really, kind of, I can only speak to this sort of slightly useless element of words and what words to use and what words not to use. You know, um, but something that I think certainly does frighten me a little bit about, um, I think, very well-meaning climate activists um, is they're desperately trying to get people to take them seriously, to take their cause seriously, and so they'll often kind of slip into slightly apocalyptic language. Mm. You know, kind of talking about sort of the sky turning to ash and, you know, all of this kind of really frightening, dramatic language. Um, and I think it's quite a bad strategy, even though I know exactly why they're doing it, mm. you know, because I think for one thing, uh, there's, you know, there, there has actually been kind of some small scale research on this, that it does actually tend to, the more you try and frighten people, the more, more inclined hope, they feel more to not want feel. to believe you. Interesting. Um, yeah, I think that's. I think that's probably. I think that that probably makes a lot of sense. Yeah, but also, you know, the kind of language of apocalypse, of worlds ending and new ones being born, and you is, you know, the bread and butter of the far right. They love that shit, mm. you know. Um, and so I sometimes think, you know, this is just coming from my kind of very niche, special little interest, but um, it does concern me. I think about how that language might be harnessed in mm. the future. Yeah. And to me, it's like kind of scary because like that type of apocalyptic language also sort of feeds into, I mean, like in relation, like it 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 works well for a state that like doesn't really want to kind of improve anything or like fix anything, right? Yes. Or to kind of you know, there's there's you know, we spoke we've spoken a bit in various contexts about like the lack of imagination about like better futures or articulation of like what those kind of more optimistic futures are like, and as a result people tend to kind of either like inhibit or at least kind of get swamped by the uh, pretense of like inevitable apocalypse or crucially they sort of retreat into nostalgia yeah. um, and re kind of constitute that. But the idea of like the future and the lost future um, means that like there isn't really like a vision of a type of world that is worth fighting for, or, like a world like that is worth seeing, a world that like is worth kind of like bringing into fruition for future generations. And I think for like, governments that are hostile to like doing anything by way of like public infrastructure or um you know like uh sustainable planning or like even kind of like remote uh like uh i guess like even types of policies that might improve people's lives in ways that can have you know social policies that can like improve people's lives in relation to like you know the environment and the world that they're in like this type of apocalyptic language actually feels much more appealing right yeah and the great thing well like the thing that like people who advocate using that type of apocalyptic language sort of do or like what is very kind of convenient is the idea of just like you know it, it's almost like giving 
the elites that they are trying to fight against, but they are kind of um, hostile towards, like almost like a get out of jail free card. Mm. Uh, and I feel like that's kind of where the lack of productivity comes from. And then when it kind of gets rendered into content, and again, like, I don't know, you know, I, I, I'm trying to kind of, one thing I'm really trying to do is just like limit my exposure to doomerism online because mm. I think like, especially during, you know, not only like the winter months of this country, but like year two plus of like the kind of weird state of pandemic, non-pandemic we're in, it's very easy to kind of get lost in that notion of like inevitable apocalypse. Mm. Um, but what's very scary is that like when that seems to kind of be like edging more and more towards a default, largely because you kind of like have quite a sizable number of like, you know, the population that seemingly either don't think that a better future is possible or are crucially like suspicious of people who kind of make the argument that like, yeah, you might have to like sacrifice things and you might have to kind of think about like what sustainability might be. But if you want like a world that your kids can live in and not kind of be so fearful of, then like maybe that's a sacrifice worth making. Mm. I don't know. I I guess like my last thought about this is like, I wonder, I wonder whether like some of this also like the kind of appeal of fascist language also like derives out of the effects of you know decades of austerity where many people have sort of felt that they have like you know had to kind of give up so much or like they weren't able Mm. to access so much so the idea of like someone telling you that oh you need to kind of give up more and crucially like you have to give up things like I don't know like cars are a really good example of this maybe you have to like you know give up your car and like because it causes environmental damage but also not really recognizing that like for so much of the UK anyway, um, unless you live in a major city, yeah. or even if, or if you're, unless you live in like the one major city, like it is very difficult to live a sociable life without some kind of automated transportation. I don't know. Like, I know that's like a kind of kind of amalgamation of things, but I guess it's sort of just like this: these types of optimistic visions and like optimistic language can't really. It, it's very difficult to articulate it when for so long, like policy and institutions have basically kind of told most people that this is an impossible utopian goal that you should just like not entertain at all Mm. yeah no i think that's a really good point and yeah it definitely i think speaks to uh the challenge i guess that yeah anyone trying to kind of articulate a kind of new sustainable world is essentially up against which is the kind of dominant um, understanding of politics in this country for such a long time. And I thought it, you know, about the COVID denialists themselves, really, which, you know, when I spoke to so many of them, when I was kind of at rallies and things like that, and you, you speak, you find quite a few people who say the virus is entirely fake. Um, but you also speak to people who will say, you know, well, the virus is real, but it's not that bad and it only kind of hurts the sort of clinically vulnerable anyway. So, you know, why do why do I have to stay indoors yeah. for them? Mm. And I kind of thought like, actually, and fair enough, that is kind of the message that you have been getting for a really long time, which is why should I have to sacrifice for mm. someone who's kind of disabled or vulnerable or anything like that? That's their problem, not ours, mm. you yeah. know? Um, and it sort of did seem like, yeah, I can absolutely understand why this seems like a really kind of, uh, radical, essentially kind of change in like values and principles and what government is, you know, uh, meant to do essentially, if that was something that kind of, if that was the only understanding of 
government and its role and its responsibility towards you and other people mm. you had been exposed to. Mm. Yeah, particularly if your if your kind of only real awareness of the government's role in your life is over the past past sort of two decades, you would not think that a government exists to look after you. So why would you think that your role is to look after anyone else? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I mean, I don't want to kind of, I don't want to be too kind of forgiving and charitable to people who take the line, well, it's only people who have, who have clinical vulnerabilities that die, <laughs> so what do we get? No, I don't, I think that's, I think that's a really, really fucked <laughs> way to it think is. about things. Um, it is, but it is also just like the dominant It's as absolutely, the, do- I know, it's absolutely the dominant you know? narrative, yeah. But it, I think it's interesting as well talking about, um, talking about climate activism is that, is that, Anything to do with environmental activism has over the past it, it must be getting on for fifty for fifty years now, if not if not more, that environmentalism has been consistently cast both by political language and by kind of institutional preoccupation as um, simultaneously kind of sort of weak weak whiny cereal eating. Um, mm. but also, but also dangerous, um, but also a kind of a dangerous, uh, a dangerous kind of sort of anarchist adjacent element from sort of from within the body politic and the, um, hostility towards environmentalism and environmentalists, which is all across the media and it's all across mm. p- political spectrums now because there's a pretense of a particular kind of platform leftist, shall we say, to uh, account for environmentalism and particularly environmental activists as being kind of middle-class concern and sort of going on about, oh, well, it's just retired lecturers. And without sort of thinking about, well, let's think about material relations and who actually has the time to engage in climate activism. It's not most people. So the fact of them being retired lecturers is not in it, in and of itself a discounting element of what they're trying of what they're trying to say and what they're trying to communicate and because if you look at the you know the big the big list of um organizations that were uh that were being infiltrated by um infiltrated by MI6 or mm. watched by the police there are so many environmental organizations on there and like some of them like you cannot mm-hmm. believe that they found themselves onto a list of of, of kind of, of potentially yeah. kind of agitative dangerous organizations there's like one which is like kind of like Brighton save the dolphins or something it's like why do you need a police officer in Brighton save the dolphins um it was a real yeah it was a, a real like um yeah, counter-terrorism kind of like scare in the yeah. 90s, which kind of filtered down to lots and lots of, you know, I think it began in the US, but filtered down to, yeah, I mean, filtered down to British intelligence and yeah. um, also like movies, something I often notice if you see a like 90s action movie, like yeah. a lot of them have mu- lots more like eco-terrorist kind of like, um, even villains. In like, even in like Ghostbusters, the guy who is concerned about the environment is like he's the he's, he's the villain and the antagonist um, of the entire. Like um, again, like maybe maybe it's not maybe maybe it's not the best idea to kind of come up with an entire kind of conception of uh, cultural reality based on Ghostbusters. But 
Uh, no, but it but is really I'm, true. But while, I'm here, <laughs> while I am doing that, um, <laughs> but it, it, and I think, and it's, and it, I think it's, I think it's very meaningful that the uh, that the kind of hostility <laughs> towards uh, towards environmentalism has been like has been deliberately stoked and fermented, and it's been deliberately stoked and fermented in order uh, in order to persuade people to locate their anger about the inaction of government and what again inaction it's it's too kind a term mm. uh the greed of of governments the venality of governments the un the incapability of uh of of cutting loose sort of big money donors from from the fossil fuel industries it's mm. it's it's just it's just yet another expression and manifestation of powerful people wanting nothing more other than to hold on to power and they don't really mind if extinction of a meaningful extinction of life on earth is 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 sort of the result of that because they are still hanging on to hanging on hanging on to power and it's interesting that people who are so possibly rightly so kind of pathologically suspicious of the engines of power and of the and of the kind of upper echelons of the of of the globe of the of the globe's government you'd be you'd think that they'd be more inclined towards an interest in environmentalism and not so much in hostility towards it but then again they are in a position where they have been where it's been absolutely kind of baked into every single aspect of the culture and the news and the political language that they've consumed. So it, it, maybe it's just in there without them even really thinking about it. Mm. It's just it's interesting because it's so thoroughly antithetical to the needs and wants of what they would class as global elites. Mm. That it's not something that they've kind of grabbed hold of as a kind of as a as a method of antagonism. I, just, I think it's interesting. No, yeah. I agree. I mean, you know, I think if I was if I kind of had my tinfoil hat on, I'd say it does seem awfully convenient how many conspiracy theories do seem to point their proponents past the actual people in power mm. and to some people who are kind of made up and fictional or, you know, kind of transformed beyond recognition and crucially are completely untouchable. Mm. Do you know? So, you know, whether it's the kind of uh, cabal of QAnon or I guess the kind of sort of, uh, yeah, Zionist ordered government of kind of neo Nazis or things like that. There's actually like nothing you can actually personally do to stop those people because they are by de definition unseen, by definition hidden. And it kind of actually, even though all of the language will be about speaking truth to power, about sticking it to the elites, the only people that conspiracy theorists will ever actually meaningfully harm are just other ordinary people. You know, yeah. people with no power whatsoever. Yeah. Um, and so it does kind of seem, I mean, you know, it's a feature, not a bug almost, that, you know, for all the language of talking about elites, you are actually making these people kind of essentially more powerless than they already are mm. by feeding them this stuff. Yeah. And, you know, and providing the only people that they can l lash out to are just people even more powerless than them. Yeah. And I think that's what was quite interesting about. Um, about the kind of rhetoric around January the 6th, that when people of this kind of particular <clears throat> stripe finally did have at least kind of putative access 
to the elites that they were so that that, that they're so energized about they they kind of they shied back they shied away from it at the kind of last minute like but that it's so interesting to have spent so much of your so much of your time and energy kind of getting getting exercised about kind mm. of Nancy Pelosi and then you kind of running we're going to get Nancy Pelosi and then all you can do is pretend to talk on her phone because that's and how like you the get dog, her. the dog that caught the car yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah exactly yeah it's yeah exact it's exactly what it well, is and i suppose that's why so many people think that it was think that it was like infiltrated or or just a kind of or, or just an op from the get go i think it makes yeah. that makes perfect sense as well I mean, there's also that thing about, and I'll, I'll maybe we can like end on this note because it is like a content note, which is that like you kind of, you know, for you know, you spend so much of your time invested in this like huge kind of um, this thing that you believe is kind of going to unveil all the dark secrets about the world that you live in, and by revealing them, you you can kind of finally bring justice, and it's like this kind of, you know, it's it's the kind of classic hero narrative, right? But when you finally sort of get to the gates of hell. Um, all you can do is like make content uh, because that's all you've been doing like for you know your investment into this conspiracy your investment into like this kind of belief system like has involved you making content sharing content distributing content participating in content and like I think that for lots of kind of you know when I kind of look at conspiracies now um, you know what I see is also just like oh, like you just have different variations of content creators. And mm. like, as you kind of create more and more content and you like, you circulate it more and more, the kind of like, um, you know, the, the, the elites that you kind of believe are holding society back and like, you know, destroying the world, they just kind of become obscure figures, right? They become yeah. like things you kind of point at to remind yourself <laughs> of where you are. But like, you know, beyond that, they kind of don't, you know, you don't really know what to do with them um and you know and i guess in the case of like lots of the january the six people you know who did just kind of just like live stream going into an office and pretending to use a phone um as like that that being their sort of like great revolution um even like post january the six and even crucially when like some of those protesters were killed by police like i just don't think they really knew what to do about that like they weren't really prepared for that um and i sort of wonder how much of that is also kind of related to the idea that when you are producing content, when you are like the main character of that content, when you're the protagonist, everyone else like around you kind of becomes like a side character or they become someone who is like in relation to your main character story arc. Um, so that when those material consequences, or, like when material consequences happen to them and crucially like any type of revolutionary movement requires like, you know, a mass movement of people you know, it just, I guess, like, the point I'm trying to make is that, like, that type, any type of revolution or any type of, like, you know, even if, even if you were to kind of, you know, reveal the dark secrets and stuff, mm -hmm. like, that needs to sort of be a mass movement and that needs to be a mass movement of people who, like, see themselves as equals and see them and are, and are willing to sacrifice themselves for that higher goal. And, like, like, the production of content and the continued production of content, like, is antithetical to that goal. Yeah, um, you can't have solidarity when everyone around you is a crisis actor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and it means, and it, yeah, and it ultimately means that, like, realizing, you know, in order yeah. to kind of reinforce <laughs> reinforce the conspiracy theory, then, or like to reinforce the validity of that conspiracy theory, like the way that you do it is by kind of like finding tangible enemies that don't really mean that much to you, materially speaking. And crucially, those people are like 
people who are more powerless than you or people mm-hmm. who are kind of just like secondary to your like overall objectives or people who like exist primarily to make content for your audience of of people who you kind of view as more important and more engaged like i don't know this is the sort of like a half-baked thought but i think there is like something to the idea of like content generally being unproductive as like a means of achieving or like means of kind of pursuing any type of political goal but like a conspiracy movement that is sort of born out of content and reinforces itself through that medium like yeah do you know what I mean I don't know if that makes any sense my brain is sort of just like operating now like 40 percent so <laughs> um and I'm just yeah I'm just wondering like which one of wh- who who out of me and Phoebe is the crisis actor because I feel like we've both forgotten <laughs> so so on that note on that note we could probably end um Annie thank you so much for joining us once again uh we really appreciate it we love you have we love having you on we're looking forward to uh inviting you on again in the future but until then uh how can people listen to your stuff or like how can people keep up with like the important work that you're doing yeah so I contribute uh regularly to QN Anonymous uh the last episode I just did um was about conspiracy theories around Grenfell Tower so if you feel like some light-hearted content go and listen to that um and i also uh write and host my own limited series called vaccine the human story um which is about the history of the first vaccine and the anti-vax movement and you can find that on any podcast app and also on youtube where it's got some lovely visuals alongside cool um yeah you should do that all the links will be in the show notes um you can follow us at 10k postpod if you haven't already i mean you're a bonus subscriber you should sort of know all this by now i don't know if i need to plug this anymore <laughs> um so uh but the only thing i guess like from my side is just like this show is produced by devon you can follow them at devon underscore on earth and listen to kill james bond if you don't already uh phoebe do you want to plug your stuff anyway yeah i mean i assume that you're that you're probably pretty much trapped in here with us if you're a bonus subscriber at this point but if you are for whatever reason not a listener of me and milo's seinfeld podcast um, that's masters of our domain and you can follow that on twitter over at masters of pod yeah there's a section of like annie kelly fans who like subscribe specifically just for annie kelly episodes um and it's, it's specifically <laughs> for them so <laughs> so yeah annie kelly fans listen to uh, uh masters of our own domain Um, I think that's it from us. So until next time, we will catch you later. Have a good one. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.